It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Ah, uh, yes, indeed he is. They checked my ID at the door, and uh, even though I wear the mask disguise, they let me in anyway. <laughs> Good afternoon. Welcome to this Thursday edition of Lifeline for the 22nd day of February, just about five minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. We're here with you for the next two hours addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Well, as you know, on yesterday's program, we announced the passing of evangelist Billy Graham, Now, today we learn that more than a week of mourning and services will be planned to honor Dr. Graham. That will begin today and continue into next week. The minister, often called America's evangelist, died in his sleep at his home near Asheville, North Carolina, just yesterday morning. He was 99 years old. Dr. Graham's body will be moved to the Billy Graham Training Center in Asheville today. Private service for his immediate family is scheduled for Saturday afternoon. And then from there, a motorcade will bring his body to the Billy Graham Library in Charlotte on Saturday. And then will lie in public repose in the library next Monday and Tuesday. An invitation-only funeral in Charlotte will begin at noon on Friday. With more details now, we have an update from Sharon Reed. The iconic minister, often referred to as America's pastor, died in his sleep at his home near Asheville, North Carolina, Wednesday. He was 99. His son, Franklin, spoke about his father's legacy on NBC's Today Show. He just always saw himself as a farm boy from Mecklenburg County. But God, for some reason, just touched my father and blessed him. And so the successes, uh, he'd want he'd want the, everyone to know that it was God that did it and not him. House Speaker Paul Ryan says Graham's body will lie in honor in the Capitol Rotunda for about 24 hours next Wednesday. An invitation-only funeral will be held next Friday at the Billy Graham Library in Charlotte. Sharon Reed, NBC News Radio. The remarkable thing about the life and legacy of this man is the number of lives that he touched as a simple messenger of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, living out that John 316 model for all of us. And I think down through the years, certainly in engagement on this program, my goodness, almost 30 years, 28 years now, um, I have met untold numbers of people who either came to Christ through the ministry of Dr. Graham or rededicated their lives after having backslidden. And so the legacy continues. We're not here to uh, to puff him up in any respect, but to simply show respect. And I think in many ways to, to look as Dr. Graham as a mentor, as a model for all of us in terms of the fire and enthusiasm for sharing the gospel. Now, I know I've gotten emails from some listeners that say, well, you know, occasionally he misspoke. There were some doctrinal missteps here and there. And and while that may be true, I think there are times when Dr. Graham made mistakes, like any of us, that he subsequently publicly said, oops, made a boo-boo on that one. I think the bigger point to be mindful here. And I was mentioning this to a colleague just yesterday. When I think of all of the evangelists and televangelists that found themselves in a variety of scandals dating back to the 1980s with uh, Baker and Swaggart to more recent scandals of today, any long others of that sort. The one thing that can be said of Dr. Billy Graham is that through his almost 70-year-long ministry, not once was there ever a single iota of scandal or impropriety leveled at him in any form or fashion. And so there's much, I think, for us to 
to learn from the kind of life that he led. Joining me now is Kim Katola. Kim, of course, is the author of the best-selling book, Cradle My Heart, Finding God's Love After Abortion, published by Kriegel Publications. She is the former host of CBS Talk Powerhouse WCCO in Minnesota and joins us now to talk a bit about the life and legacy of Dr. Graham. You have a, a personal connection here, Kim, don't you, in that for uh, for quite some time you worked very closely with one of Dr. Graham's daughters, his uh, daughter Ruth. Yes, and thank you for for the opportunity, Craig, for me to just give uh, my small tribute. I did not ever have the opportunity to meet Dr. Graham, but I traveled in conference ministry with his daughter, his middle daughter, Ruth, also known as Bunny, <laughs> for a lot of years. And, um, you know, the the genesis for that was the fact that Ruth had uh, her daughter, well, she still has her daughter, Windsor Botters is her married name, um, who had three crisis pregnancies and chose life in each case, twice as a teen, one time she released a child for adoption, uh, but then as a married woman when she had a medically advised, uh, uh, the, uh, her doctors were advising her to terminate a pregnancy because they had given her a drug wrongly, not knowing she was pregnant. And indeed that child has some medical challenges, but uh, for me it's, it's very dear to my heart that as a person who joined Ruth in that ministry to minister on the issue of abortion, to know that she and her family, uh, her daughter faced the challenges and did the right thing. I know that's an old school expression, but she chose life when it would have been a, a very simple for her to not have done so. And I think that is a beautiful testimony that bespeaks the, one of the, the family legacy of Dr. Graham, to be sure. Indeed so. And, you know, I, I think all of us, when we hear about these situations, we learn of a family member or a friend um, who has uh, recently had a child that's been diagnosed with Down syndrome or something of that sort or cerebral palsy, and we say, oh, what a horrible thing that's happened here, what a terrible burden the family is going to have to bear, and, and, and in the process somehow dehumanize this individual just because they are uh, differently abled from you or I or don't have the entire um, uh, uh, cross-section of of, uh, physical capabilities as we do. And yet at the end of the day, the the utter irony is that these children are still formed and fashioned in the very image of God. It, in fact, is very God himself who breathed life into these children. And so they deserve every bit of respect and care and protection as the most perfectly formed little baby with 10 little tiny toes and 10 tiny little fingers that is just flawless in every fashion. You know, I just came upon the the verses in Exodus 4.11, which uh, really blessed me, where Moses was complaining after God put the call on his life that he, I'm slow of speech, we all remember Moses saying that to God, but I did not remember God's answer, and he said, did I not make people blind and make people mute? Am I not God? In other words, he was saying to Moses, you know, a lot of the same message in the book of Job, I know what I'm doing, I don't make mistakes when I make people even though the world may say that their limitations are too much. Um, God never looks upon any of his creation that way. So you're right, and I really appreciate you under underlining that part of the story, Craig. And, and I think it also goes to a broader sense of value for human life that I think we in the pro-life movement need to be mindful of. I was talking about this just the other day with a gentleman from the National Right to Life Committee, 
that we have focused a lot on wanting to um, spare the the unborn from the abortionist knife. That's well and good and important. Um, but I think, too, to be mindful of people across the continuum that deserve our care, our attention, and our efforts toward protection, uh, whether we're talking about children that are born differently abled, up to and including today, Kim, as you know, a growing movement that would suggest that, well, once you reach a certain age and you no longer are capable in a physical form to be able to uh, uh, accomplish certain goals, that uh, maybe it's time to turn you out to pasture, that it would be cruel and inhuman to warehouse you, and therefore we are going to provide a means by which a doctor may assist you in experiencing death with dignity, if somehow to suggest that dying from natural causes is somehow undignified. That part I've never fully understood. But doesn't this point, and I think in in some respects, to not only the life and legacy of of Dr. Graham, but much of the message that he um, transmitted and shared the entirety of his ministry life, and that is that that each of us are, are preciously formed by God himself, that he sent his only son to die on our behalf, that in him and through him we might be forgiven of sins and ultimately reconciled unto God so that we can walk in fellowship with him. And that shed blood, that that um, effort toward providing a means by which we might be reconciled is, is metered out not selfishly or with limitations, but in fact is something that is freely given to all who would receive it. I couldn't say it better, Craig. And, you know, people may not know that Billy Graham was there in the early 1970s with uh, the genesis of the Christian Action Council, which went on to found what became CareNet, the crisis pregnancy uh, center movement. And he, he had the vision for that. 1975 was when those individuals, which included the Everett Koop, got together and crafted an evangelical response to the crisis of abortion becoming legal in the country. And so this is something that Dr. Graham, and again, as you mentioned, you know, he took somewhat, uh, he took positions that may not be popular with the pro-life community today. He made an exception for rape in some of his writings. But as late as 2012, he urged voters to vote pro-life. And I think that um, he also often uh, spoke of the forgiveness that people like me can access because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, that abortion is not an unforgivable sin. And so many pastors are silent on that issue. And, you know, if you look at the history of what happened with that Christian Action Council, it's very interesting. And, Craig, I know you'll appreciate this. They said they were met with a wall of evangelical indifference or even suspicion. Uh, for tackling the abortion issue. And many of us who are, you know, vocal on the pro-life issue, we still find that (laughs) in church circles, in Christian circles today, don't we? But, uh, you know, Dr. Graham was not silent about the question. He stood for the unborn, and he stood for those broken by abortion. And I, I, that's one of the reasons that I joined millions in sharing my sympathy with his family, who loved him so. We're visiting today with... Best-selling author Kim Katola, Kim's new book, Cradle My Heart, Finding God's Love After Abortion. The book, by the way, is available at uh, booksellers around the Bay Area as well as through Amazon.com. And uh, coincidentally, Dr. Graham's daughter, Ruth, wrote the foreword to Kim's book. Let's take a time out. We'll get back to more of our conversation, our visit today with Kim Katola. When we come back, uh, drilling down into this question of the matter of 
we as Christians who have received so much from the the um, forgiveness side of the equation, how we can do a better job toward communicating a message of forgiveness for post-abortive women. Our tribute to Dr. Graham continues in our conversation with Kim Katola as well, right after this brief update on traffic. And we'd like to hang over. Let's see. It isn't uh, Bill. It's not Tony. It's Michael Bennett. Michael Bennett in the KFAX. Maybe we can get Tony one of these days. He could sing the... Tra- no, never mind. Let's get a look at, <laughs> at traffic. Yeah. Sorry, Jarrell. Some left their heart in San Francisco. I left my brain somewhere else today, I suppose. been a long day. Michael Bennett's got a look at your Thursday ride home. Michael, help me get out of this hole, please. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Our conversation with best-selling author Kim Katola continues. Her latest book, by the way, Cradle My Heart, Finding God's Love After Abortion, the foreword of which was written by Dr. Graham's daughter, Ruth. And I, I think there's an important message here, Kim. You you touched on this prior to the break, the notion that the church, while doing a significantly better job today, but certainly back in the 1970s, right after the Roe versus Wade decision, particularly within Protestantism, was largely silent on this issue. If anything, the bigger voice lent toward the unborn was done by the Roman Catholic Church, and it took a while for evangelicals to sort of catch up, so to speak. One of the reasons why I think perhaps it has been problematic is because this is a a sin, this is an evil that has visited the house of the Lord as well. If we talk about the percent of women that have experienced abortions outside of the church, the numbers are equal inside of the church. And I think perhaps not only are some in the pulpit afraid of offending But there might be some in the pulpit that have also had some direct experience with this, and it's just an issue that's that's too close to home. It's too painful. And so instead of speaking about it to to help initiate the healing process, they feel more comfortable just being silent. But I wonder if there is perhaps some extreme short-sightedness in that, in so much as, as we said earlier, Dr. Graham's core central message was the proclamation of the gospel, which is centered around, of course, God's grace and his forgiveness and his desire to walk in fellowship with mankind. And I suppose that that message of grace and forgiveness also extends to the post-abortive woman. Sadly, though, we don't hear that resonate perhaps as loudly as, loudly as we should, do we? Well, I, I know I did not when I needed to hear that message. And I don't speak for all women, and I can tell you in listening to hundreds of stories through the years, Craig, that every story is different. I think every abortion represents a separate need of the heart. You know, I mean, the the 15-year-old who is dumped at an abortion facility by her parents and said, do this or don't come home, has very little in common with a 40-year-old woman who's told by her doctor, there's a horrible prognosis here, you must abort. You know, the, the emotional needs in the aftermath are very different. Of course, but what we share in common is a grief and a guilt. And it's an unacknowledged grief because we as a culture have said they're not children. So what is there to grieve? It's a terrible catch-22 for us. And um, I, I will say that, you know, after I became a Christian in my late 30s, which was a couple of decades after my abortion, I did become, you know, I I was attending a pro-life Bible-preaching church, and whenever the pastor would mention abortion from the pulpit, it was like a knife to my heart. It was so difficult to hear the truth confirmed that, oh, I had participated 
in taking the life of a child. Uh, but that was the beginning of my healing. You know, you can't deal with your sin until you've named it. And so, um, and he, he was, he was somewhat careful to mention the, the message of mercy and forgiveness. And, and to his credit, he also, every week in the bulletin, there was a little three-line uh, announcement that there, if you've had an abortion, there's confidential help available, and they gave a local phone number. Boy, I read that for a week, Craig, before uh, months, maybe years, before I went ahead and took that step and made that call. But uh, abortion recovery belongs in the Church. And pastors needn't shy away from it. I think that, you know, you said a lot uh, as you set this question up as to why pastors aren't preaching, why they aren't proclaiming the truth proactively. There is some compromise. There's a need for healing on the part of pastors. But there's also a, a lack of understanding, you know, that the case for life is from science, that life begins at conception. And, of course, God's Word affirms that it goes further says life begins before conception in the mind of the lord so we don't we don't need to muzzle our witness at all as christians we can say confidently that when the bible says don't shed innocent blood that's a pro-life statement there's no method yet of ending the life of an unborn child that doesn't shed their blood which we know scientifically is separate from the mother's blood so, yes, the Church has a lot of work to do, and I pray for our pastors that they would be bold to do it. I pray that at seminary level they'd be trained to do it. I think there's there's just a, a lot of missing pieces before we're going to see that. We mentioned the relationship that you had in working in public speaking ministry with Dr. Graham's daughter, Ruth, for many years. As you have reflected, Kim, over the last 24 hours since the passing of Dr. Graham, um, your thoughts on his legacy, and, and there's always that sort of question, I think, that lingers in the back of one's mind when we look at the sheer impact that he had. Uh, there's no other, I think, have disseminated the gospel so broadly, so widely across so many continents over so many years than Dr. Billy Graham. Um, can you envision someone coming up behind him? I know certainly his son Franklin has taken over the, the ministry, but, you know, as, as someone joke, as I'm no Johnny Carson, uh, Franklin Graham is no Billy Graham. Can you ever imagine anybody <laughs> ever filling the shoes of somebody that likes the Billy Graham? Uh, you know, that's hard to imagine, isn't it? Um, I, I think he, he was such a singular individual, you know, and he was is so beautifully poised for his time. I don't know. I don't know if in the 21st century someone could, you know, accomplish what he accomplished uh, in the 20th century. But I know that, you know, Ruth's personal homage to her dad on her blog, uh, it was beautiful. And this is what I loved, what she had to say about it. Um, she said, you know, it was because he understood his mission, not to amass the world acclaim uh, or admiration or fame, not to gain wealth. Uh, that actually, she said, was one of his fears, but that he was able to keep his humility, and he was able to live out his attitude, which said, Yes, God had given him a great platform, but his faith was no more valuable to the Lord than uh, people who show up day after day, Ruth wrote, the nurse, the teacher, the janitor. No matter what our task, when we do it as unto the Lord faithfully day after day, whether we feel like it or not, God sees and God will reward us. And I, I was really blessed that Ruth was ministering to her readers in her grief to help us see that... Um, yes, Billy Graham had an extraordinary life, but all of us living out our faith matter 
in God's kingdom and matter in his economy right where he's placed us. And, and, you know, ironically, coming full circle, um, yeah, there probably will not quite be someone who will have the kind of um, soapbox uh, platform that he had in disseminating the gospel as Dr. Graham would not be trusted by world leaders to the same degree, (coughs) pardon me, as Dr. Graham was. But what makes Billy Graham, I think, uh, remarkable is not his capacity at, at, at teaching or traveling or doing all the things that he did, but simply in his humility, his obedience to that which God called him to do. Uh, there is a real measure of greatness. And so if God has called you to minister to your Sunday school classroom, you say, well, Craig, gee, I got 20 kids on Sunday, and that's it. Look at Dr. Graham. Spoke to millions of people over the course of his lifetime. Yes, but in God's economy, your obedience to the 20 kids is just as impactful as Dr. Graham's obedience to sharing the gospel with the hundreds of millions that he spoke to. So it is it is blossoming where God has placed us and planted us and being faithful to him and being obedient to him and what God has called us to do. That will be the yardstick by which our success is measured. And again, it's a measurement of success that confounds the world. It is foolishness. It is craziness from a world standpoint. But in God's economy, it makes absolutely perfect sense. Kim Katola, again, the book, Cradle My Heart, Finding God's Love After Abortion, published by Kriegel Books and available bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through Amazon.com. All right, our thanks as I cough my way through the traffic here. Our thanks to Kim Katola. And let's uh, turn things over right quick. I'm going to go run and get some more hot tea here. We'll see what Michael Bennett's got to say about your ride home, Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. 535 here on this Thursday, the 22nd of February. As we mentioned earlier, Dr. Graham's organization is planning on multiple days of mourning for the beloved evangelist, as Mark Mayfield reports. An invitation-only funeral is going to take place next Friday, and after that, he'll be laid to rest. Mr. Graham will be buried beside his wife, Ruth, at the foot of the cross-shaped brick walkway in the prayer garden on the northeast side of the Billy Graham Library. Graham died Wednesday at the age of 99. A spokesman for Graham's organization said Graham's doctor said he, quote, just wore out. Mark Mayfield, NBC News Radio. I think at the age of 99, we'll we'll give him permission to do that, bless his heart. Joining me now is Pastor Sam Rohr, president of the American Pastors Network. He also writes and produces the weekly radio program Stand in the Gap. And Pastor Rohr, always a privilege to have you join us on the program as we lead off our visit together. First, your thoughts and reflections on the life and legacy of Dr. Billy Graham. Well, you know, Craig, uh, when I think of uh, Dr. Graham's ministry, um, anyone I think who's known anything about him would would view these things. Number one, when we think of his ministry, we think of someone who is known for preaching the simple gospel of Jesus Christ by faith in Christ alone. Uh, He didn't make it complicated. He made it very simple, but he took that message all around the world. I think that's how we will remember him, because that's what he wanted to be known for, and that's what he did. And in thinking about it, I also think about this. Uh, men are often measured by the, their children that they leave behind. And when I consider Franklin Graham, who most of the listening audience would know, and Anne, his daughter, uh, both of them 
have followed along in their father's footsteps. They are both able speakers, and they both, as we know, Franklin, uh, he doesn't do an interview with uh, with uh, out coming up and talking about the uh, faith in Jesus Christ and salvation within about the first 90 seconds. Um, they, too, have carried uh, on in his legacy. And there's another thing, too, uh, Craig, I'd like to mention when I think of uh, uh, Billy Graham. He was very, very cautious about his testimony. And one thing he did that uh, a lot of folks don't know is that before he would even go into a hotel room when he was traveling, some of his advance team would always go to that room to make sure that there was nobody there with uh, some kind of ulterior plan, someone to snap a picture and try to present a, a compromised image. He was very careful about his relationship with Ruth and how that would reflect on uh, his testimony and Christ. The other thing was that uh, many individuals, when they're in public ministry and they begin to get a lot of donations, as he did, they often can get wound up and get misguided by the amount of money, and he instituted a separate financial board to sit between him, his personal finances, and the ministry, separate from the way things came in, so that no one could raise a finger of accusation that he was profiting by the contributions of those who gave. Those are things that are very, very significant. I think they need to be stated in, in, in relationship to remembering who this man was. No, I think you're absolutely right. And, and you know, the interesting thing, I, I reflect back on myself. Um, I have been in broadcasting now. Boy, I'm really going to sound like an old guy. Uh, Forty years this year. And much of that time in Christian broadcasting, uh, both for time and television, and of course, the bulk of it in radio. And, you know, anybody that's been around for more than a day recalls some of these scandals. You go back to the 1960s and A.A. Allen, who uh, preached his last sermon at the Jack Tar Hotel, came back to the KFAX studios, went on the air, did his radio program, went back to the hotel and dropped dead of cirrhosis of the liver because nobody knew he was a secret alcoholic for all those years. And then, of course, the um, televangelist scandals of the 1980s and Jimmy Swaggart and Jim Baker at all and and um, more recent times and scandals that we're all aware of. And yet, uh, if you think about the number of years that Dr. Graham was in ministry, more than 70 years, and the global footprint, and the number of reasons why both individuals and ultimately Satan himself would have cause to do all they could to, um, to bring Dr. Graham down with a scandal. There was never once a hint or a whisper of any impropriety at all. Now, he might have said things occasionally here and there that some of us went, huh? But in terms of his his personal life and the way he conducted his ministry business, there was never once a single solid accusation ever leveled against Dr. Graham, and I think that's pretty remarkable. Yeah, I do too, and I think it's a good example and a good uh, you know model for all uh, today. I think, you, you know, Craig, if if those in positions of leadership, not just within the Church, but certainly beginning within the Church, but if those positions of leadership in government, uh, ministers of God in government, Romans 13 is what they say, what it says, but if they even attempted to keep a modicum of concern about their relationship with their spouse, we wouldn't have all of this nonsense that's going on about all of these accusations about uh, 
interest and involvements of people along the way, which ultimately ends up destroying and degrading a culture. Well, look at the look at the accusations right now that are floating about against uh, the United States Congress. And, you know, we're not only learning the taxpayer dollars are being used to uh, pay off accusers, but I happen to be listening to uh, an interview on C-SPAN this morning before coming into the radio station, and they were talking about the fact that right now as we speak, there are upwards of 75 different levels of accusations against a variety of members of both uh, the House and the Senate. And you think of that, and, and as we've watched this whole Me Too thing unfold, uh, you, you wonder, my goodness, what kind of people are we electing? Uh, what manner in which is this nation being governed if we have people that think so little of their own marriage relationships that they're willing to step out and to put not only their marriage at risk, but their career at risk and the health of the nation in terms of their accountability as being leaders at risk as well. And yet this is the world in which we live. It's shocking. Well, it is, but it comes back to this fundamental thing. It begins with a person's uh, relationship with God. If, if there is a God-fearer, a God-fearing attitude in the heart of an individual, then there is a reason to be concerned about relationship, which sort of starts of all with God, and then it extends to those around us. But if there is no fear of God, no fear of accountability one day before God, then there is very little reason to be overly concerned about relationships of those around us, uh, because we ultimately aren't going to give an account. Is this in part due... We will, they say. Is this in part, uh, Pastor Rohr, due to the notion that we've kind of pulled away from the kind of Bible-based sin, salvation, sanctification preaching that we once did. And, and, I, and I raise that point because last night on the program, we played a message by Dr. Graham from his first crusade in San Francisco in 1958. And the message of all the ones that I had available to me, the one that caught my attention the most was the offense of the cross. That was the subject of his message that we aired last night. And I thought, you know, how ironic it is that the modern church, and particularly in the so-called mega church or emergent church, the notion of preaching about sin, salvation, sanctification, preaching about uh, the shed blood of Christ, the need for atonement, a man's separation from God, things of this sort, uh, seems to be further and further into the background, and more it's about, you know, give and it will be given to you, pressed down, shaken together, and overflowing. It, it's as if we're picking and choosing the scriptures that make us feel better about ourselves, even in our sin condition, as opposed to the ones that get to the bone and marrow of the matter and convict of sin and draw us closer to the cross. Yeah, I think you're exactly correct. If we do not understand who God is as creator and judge and understand the reality of sin and a real-life devil, then we will not understand our need for redemption. That is, therefore, that is the biblical worldview. God, creator, man, creation, devil, sin, man falls, man needs a redeemer, Jesus Christ, that's our hope of eternal life. And, that's you know, the irony is that while so here. many wish to, to overemphasize the, the grace side of things, I've always felt it a bit ironic that preaching grace apart from judgment um, makes grace 
pretty worthless. I mean, if there's no message of what it is that we can be delivered from and why God wants to be reconciled into us and walk un, unto us and walk in relationship with us, if there is not that heaven juxtaposed against hell, then at the end of the day, even our preaching as uh, focusing on the, God's compassion and God's mercy really becomes meaningless if there's not the angle of God's judgment. Isn't that true? Absolutely. If we do not understand the holiness and the perfection of God that cannot have sin in his sight, we will never understand our deplorable condition as fallen, sinful human beings in need of Jesus Christ. And unless we are unsaved, understanding that, we don't ever understand our need for salvation. So we must preach sin, holiness, or the wrath of God against sin, because that's what makes the redemption through Jesus Christ so absolutely wonderful and so redeeming. That is the hope. But if we don't have an understanding of sin, we will never have an understanding of the need for redemption and Jesus Christ. The devil has done a great job when he diminishes the need for Jesus Christ, then he can just do away with Jesus Christ. And unfortunately, I think our culture has found a way around Jesus Christ and dealing with him as Redeemer and Savior, and that won't work. I, that's I had, what Billy Graham talked about. He talked about what that, how that did work, and that does make a difference when we understand it. I, I had a preacher one time put it to me this way. He said, Craig, none of us would ever fully understand or appreciate the beauty of a sunrise, the brilliance of the warmth of the sun, without knowing what it's like in the pitch black darkness of midnight and the coldness and as the wind just shivers through you. Um, And I think it's very much the same thing here. We never understand the totality of grace and the work of the cross unless we understand what what that spares us from, and that is the, the depth of eternity separated from God, that, uh, that penalty for sin because of our, our Adamic sin nature and the fact that we just, we're, we're just in our fallen condition. We are not capable of keeping the law. And yet God said, I'm going to provide a way by which you can get a, a, a get-out-of-hell card, so to speak, um, and I don't say that lightly because God wishes us to walk in fellowship with him and, and, and so much so that he was willing to sacrifice his only son to pay the price on our behalf, knowing that we can't keep the law so that in him and through him we might be reconciled, be saved, and ultimately walk in fellowship with very God himself. Pastor Sam Rohrer is with us tonight. And uh, before you think we're going to get into our three-part hermeneutics class here, we're going to might be good for another edition of the program. But I, what I want to talk to Sam about right after the break um, is awareness of the persecuted church. And you know that this has been a running theme on this program for many, many years as we have traveled to a variety of countries um, in the free world and not so free world and seen just how severely our brothers and sisters who also name Jesus as Lord and Savior suffer for their faith for no other reason than naming Christ as Lord and Savior. When we come back, a look at saving the persecuted church as our conversation with Pastor Sam Rohr continues. Right now, though, we pause for an update on traffic. 546 and Michael Bennett's got the latest in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to the conversation with Pastor Sam Rohr, president of the American Pastors Network. I want to 
pivot to a topic that Dr. Graham would touch on from time to time and certainly aware of this point as he traveled globally and would oftentimes bring back stories of how other Christians in other lands um, dealt with their faith. And in many respects, to put this in perspective, I think we as Christians in the West need to be mindful that we, we enjoy a very rarefied air. We enjoy a very unique and specialized kind of Christianity because for the most part, we are able to practice our faith freely in the open, without reprisals, without government intervention, etc., etc. There's a good percentage of Christians around the world for whom that is not the experience. I think this came home to me in the most poignant fashion when, my goodness, more than 20 years ago, I had the privilege of traveling with a handful of Christian broadcasters into communist China and met in the first day or two of our presence there an elderly Chinese woman whose hands were badly gnarled. And when I first met her, I assumed erroneously that it was from uh, maybe a rheumatoid arthritis. You see people sometimes that the hands get badly deformed. And we later learned that, no, that was not, in fact, at all the case, that in the 1960s, during um, one of the uh, the revolutions, um, she had been caught in her home in the possession of a Bible, and uh, the, um, the rebel guards uh, there uh, insisted that she surrender the Bible, and she refused to do so. And so as punishment, uh, they beat her hands with sticks— until she finally dropped the Bible, but they beat her hands so severely that they became crippled and deformed as a result. And sadly, Pastor Rohr, stories like that of one fashion or another have been repeated over and over and over again. And we're not talking about going back to the Romans torturing the Christians and the Christians fleeing to the catacombs under Rome. We're talking about things that are happening to persecuted believers today and as we speak. Well, we are exactly. And uh, it is a shame uh, that the American church and the American pulpit uh, does not make this issue more uh, aware uh, of their people. Uh, but this happens around the world. And as you said, uh, we live in a rarefied air here, as you said so accurately. Uh, those who have grown up in the United States, frankly, the Western world, the Northern Hemisphere, Europe, uh, those areas where we've once seen the gospel and been impacted directly by a biblical worldview that's produced freedom, that part of the world even right now on the maps, when you look at them, free countries. Uh, th- that's where it is. But everywhere else, uh, almost everywhere else around the world, uh, freedom does not exist. And where freedom does not exist, persecution of Christians ensue. Uh, you know, the number one country for persecution right now is North Korea. They've done such an extensive job that there are very few Christians left in North Korea. But beyond that, nearly every country is an Islamic Sharia-controlled country. And uh, uh, the, these countries um, view uh, Christianity uh, not, not as uh, something good for them. They view it as a competition, in which, to some extent, it is, because freedom in Christ is a competitor with a totalitarian mindset and ideology. But uh, when you consider that there are hundreds every month that are either losing their life, being put in prison, uh, I think the number under, with open doors right now is 180 women, uh, approximately a month, that are 
that are raped, Christian women that are raped, that are, are put into forced marriages, primarily those are Islamic countries, uh, to other examples. And these are happening month in and month out. And, uh, and, and Craig, it is not God's desire that the American church and the American, that our nation that has the power and has the ability to help these beleaguered brothers and sisters to sit idly by and do nothing and pretend as if all is right, when in fact the numbers show that there is much that is not right. We are to grieve when the body of Christ grieves. But how can we grieve if we don't know about it when the numbers are there, but we either choose not to look at them or not to concern ourselves by saying, well, it's not here, and I'm going to turn my head. God is not pleased with that kind of action. So that's why we are trying, as part of the Pastors Network, to help to raise this attention uh, to the Church uh, generally and have the pulpits of America address it. It needs to be addressed, not just so we can pray for these people, but that we can bring public policy to bear from our country, our national leaders, to help these beleaguered Christians who are being persecuted so terribly around the world. And you're right. And this is more than just knowledge so that we can um, pray as an informed people, but also awareness that there are some political solutions here, too. And I know some of my listeners just rolled their eyes and thought, oh, boy, here he goes. Uh, but, but, you know, in all honesty, think about the fact that our, our number one trading partner, the number one trading partner with the United States, also has one of the worst human rights records, and that routinely persecutes Christians, beats them, jails them, takes away their livelihood, separates them from the family, and there's never any repercussions. Nobody ever calls them on the carpet. Nobody ever criticizes them. And that, of course, is communist China. And there are many others to the list, up to and including, as Pastor Rohr mentions, North Korea, where in North Korea, possession of a Bible is a executable offense. Can you imagine that? Here in the United States, you murder somebody. In, in many in states in the, in, in the U.S., you, you, you won't get capital punishment for it. But possess, be caught in possession of a Bible in North Korea, and it is a capital crime. And it's a crime that we don't do more about this. Tell us briefly, if you would, Pastor Rohr, about Save the Persecuted Christians uh, organization and how folks can get more information. Well, there is an organization, a broad-based effort of people uh, coming together, and it's called Save the Persecuted Christians, plural, uh, dot org. And that is where I'd invite people to go. They can find information there, not just about what's happening, but also about things that they can do. Uh, there's information that they can present to their pastor and encourage them to preach about it and for them to basically know what is going on, but talk about it, uh, bring it up, understand what it is, speak about it, pray about it, but also be aware and pray for those who are trying to do something about it. I'm going to say one thing. This administration has, uh, the Trump administration has uh, nominated and has now been confirmed uh, Senator Brown, uh, Sam Brownback. He is now the ambassador-at-large for religious persecution or religious uh, liberty. His focus, and one of his main focuses, is to help bring attention to persecuted Christians around the world and to help limit foreign aid to those countries that will not stop persecuting Christians. This is something that is a very good thing. It's a matter of public—it's something that the government can do, 
but it needs to be led by people who understand what religious liberty is all about and be there to stand alongside those who are being persecuted for their faith. If we do not do that, it will come here to our doorstep in America. Well, and not only is this something that we can do, it's something, uh, Pastor Rohr, that we should be doing. And we talked earlier in this hour um, with Kim Katola about uh, Dr. Graham's position on life and uh, the issue that many of us, for example, in the pro-life movement are opposed to government funding going to support things like the harvesting of baby body parts and some of the other nefarious activities that Planned Parenthood is involved with. Well, I put this on the same par. As much as we need to be standing up and saying to the government, you cannot use my tax dollars to engage in those kinds of acts, nor should our tax dollars be going, because it's not Washington's money, remember that. It's our money. We should not be supporting or providing aid to countries that engage in violent persecution of Christians. And there are many of them out there that do, and, and many, as Pastor Rohr points out, in the Islamic world, um, and, and certainly uh, under communism, Christians have suffered and suffered Horrifically. More information available at SaveThePersecutedChristians.org. That's SaveThePersecutedChristians.org. Our thanks to Pastor Sam Rohr with being with us tonight. And on this topic, Pastor Sam, anytime you want to talk, anytime there's an update, um, particularly on this issue, uh, you have got all the airtime you need on this 50,000-watt flamethrower radio station in the fourth largest market in the country, because I believe that this is a critical issue that we all need to be not only acutely aware of, but we need to be actively engaged with, both prayerfully as well as reaching out to um, our representatives. I know Sam Brownback. He's a great guy, and he's an ideal individual to lead this effort uh, toward helping move um, support away from those countries that persecute people for their faith. Pastor Sam Rohr, president of the American Pastors Network. Okay, six o'clock. That sound? Ah, that sounds like traffic. Let's see what's going on. Michael Bennett, you've got the latest. And oh, let me not forget, Vern Tyler's going to join us coming up around the corner for our next installment of our parenting series. That'll be coming up straight ahead with Vern Tyler of Hosanna Parenting Project, but right now, let's see what's going on traffic-wise. Michael?